0: Good afternoon, I'm Bill Shambra, Director of the Bradley Center for Philanthropy and Civic Renewal. Uh, Kristen McIntyre and and I welcome you to today's panel discussion entitled The The Historical Split Between Charity and Philanthropy. As most of you know by now, this will be the final panel of some 148 uh, that the center has sponsored over the last 10 years or so. Um, Did did we do a, is there a list? Yes, good, thank you. A complete list thereof is available at your seats and the transcripts and videos for most of them should be around on the Hudson uh, website forever, or at least until we get a new uh, IT consultant and somehow they all disappear. Uh, Before we get to our topic today, um, it's an honor to say a few words of of thanks to our sponsors and supporters over the years. Uh, first, our thanks to the Hudson Institute for putting, putting up with what must have seemed a bizarre and idiosyncratic focus for a public policy center. And given the way we approached philanthropy, that is, frequently from a somewhat skeptical perspective, it must have occurred to Hudson more than once that poking funders at the same time were seeking their support probably wasn't an optimal fundraising strategy. Uh, Next, our thanks to our primary funder, the Lynde and Harry Bradley Foundation in Milwaukee. Dan Schmidt and Mike Hartman are uh, here in front from the foundation to make sure I don't walk out of the office uh, with the furniture that they paid for. Uh, One could not have asked for a better chief backer. Uh, I was never, not one time, asked to do a panel or not to do a panel on any topic, no matter how controversial. Uh, and we did, in fact, over the years hold panels on some topics that other leaders in the world of philanthropy assured me were better left unheld. Uh, in all their relations with us, Bradley staff modeled the principles of good grant making that most other foundations honor in the breach, uh, general operating support, minimal rec- reporting, and minimal metrics, uh, and in general, the trust that we knew what we were doing. Uh, The latitude we were afforded by Bradley is reflected in some significant grants we attracted from other foundations of a distinctly different uh, political inclination, namely the Hewlett Foundation and Atlantic Philanthropies, uh, to whom we are also deeply grateful. The odd bedfellows mix of funders underlined the Center's determination to bring the same broad mix to our topics and panelists. Uh, To the best of our ability, we sought genuine balance and yet uh, a civil exchange among diverse political points of view, interests, and disciplines. Uh, This quality is uh, becoming ever more rare in public policy generally, I think you would agree with me, uh, and it was never much present in the world of philanthropy to begin with, uh, so I do hope someone picks up this torch. Our thanks today is also owed to the panelists who helped us to achieve that mix over the years, <clears throat> some of whom are uh, in the room today. Scott and David on, the, on our panel today have been in, uh, uh, on other panels. Stacy Palmer is here from the Chronicle of Philanthropy who is on panels and co-sponsored a number of them. Ruth McCambridge of the nonprofit Quarterly, also a, a panelist many times and a, and a co-sponsor. Rick Cohen when he was both director of, of uh, NCPR and in his uh, current status at NPQ. Uh, Sue Hochstetter of the Alliance for Justice. Ray Madoff, who's come down <coughs> from the uh, Boston College uh, Law School just for this occasion. So I'm uh, grateful to her, she's been on two or three. I think Bob Odenhoff, uh, is he here? I think he was, yes, you've been on panels before. I know Carol Edelman has been as well. And I'm sure I've forgotten some folks or overlooked someone. But uh, anyway, um, our, our gratitude to those panelists. Finally, we, know, we owe immense gratitude to, and I think, a round of applause uh, for the two people who did all the heavy lifting for the Center while I posed uh, as the director, namely Kristen McIntyre, uh, uh, currently Assistant Director and um, is Krista here? She was trying to... Yes, there she is, Krista Schaefer Rogers, uh, her predecessor uh, at the Bradley Center. As I say, they are the ones who, who did all the work and uh, we certainly owe them, I think, a round of applause. <laughs> now onto the topic for today, and I apologize to our discussants for this uh, lengthy valediction. Uh, The notion that philanthropy is somehow different from and better than mere charity is, as the essay before us today points out, uh, perhaps the central orthodoxy of the modern American foundation. The urge to do more than put band-aids on problems, but somehow to resolve them at their source, Uh, was the founding aspiration of the first great foundations of the 20th century, and still today fires the imagination of so many wealthy newcomers to philanthropy. It has certainly spawned our favorite cliches in the sector uh, ranging from the piscatorial, teaching a man to fish rather than giving him one, uh, to the neonatal, uh, not being satisfied with snatching babies from the river, uh, but sending someone upstream to figure out who's putting them there in the first place. Uh, That latter cliche about going upriver overlooks the distinct possibility that the person dispatched upriver will get hopelessly lost in the riparian undergrowth and won't be available to do either charity or philanthropy. At any rate, uh, there can be no more appropriate way for the Bradley Center to exit than to turn our attention to this central distinction between charity and philanthropy which has been implicit in so many other panels. For that purpose, we're pleased, we were pleased to be able to persuade Ben Soskis to apply his newly minted history PhD skills to that issue in the monograph before us. Uh, The monograph is a fitting companion, I should add at this point, to Martin Morse Wooster's indispensable Bradley Center product, Great Philanthropic Mistakes. To help us uh, explore this charity philanthropy distinction, we're pleased to welcome not only Ben himself, uh, but also Patty Stonecipher of Martha's Table and formerly of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, David Hammack, an historian at Case Western Reserve, and finally, Scott Walter of the Capital Research Center. Uh, not, not in that order, but those are the folks that we're going to hear from. And Ben, we'll hear first from you, and you can either stay there or come up here.
1: Good. I'm Well, uh, first, I want to thank Bill and Kristen again and the whole Bradley Center uh, for supporting this research and for hosting this event. Um, I've been in the audience for many of these, uh, and I I think we can all agree that this is really uh, one of the few places where you can get critical and respectful dialogue on philanthropy in the nonprofit sector, so it's a real honor for me to be up here. Uh, though something of a bittersweet one because I also realized that I will not have a chance to be out there again. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's fit for us all to give uh, Bill and Kristen uh, some acknowledgement now of the terrific job uh, that they've done. Um, it's, it's a real resource. So. Um, I, I promise not to get too choked up uh, over the course of, of the event. Um, For now, I want to take a few minutes um, to give a brief overview of the monograph. Um, And in a sense, I I wrote it to provoke exactly the the type of discussion that I hope we'll we'll have today. Um, The idea can be traced to uh, repeated encounters in my uh, research um, with a trope that I'm assuming that everyone here is intimately familiar with. That is the idea uh, that philanthropy defines itself against uh, charitable giving. Uh, Whatever philanthropy might be today, it is uh, not charity. It's defined as not charity. Uh, And so with that pronouncement as the starting point, I wanted to do two things. Uh, The first was to trace the historical split between charity and philanthropy back to its origins, uh, to the various nodes and historical moments uh, where the two terms came to be defined against each other, Uh, the, the various ways in which each... Uh, became known in opposition to the other. Uh, And so uh, these moments include uh, but are uh, by no means exhausted by uh, the early modern period with the growing secularization of relief. The Enlightenment when the drive to rid the world of poverty and thus the need for charity itself flowered. Uh, The French Revolution uh, when its supporters embraced philanthropy and rejected charity believing that citizens had a right to relief Uh, while counter-revolutionaries charged that the love of all mankind eroded more parochial affections, love of home, love of nation, love of neighbor, and ultimately subverted human nature itself. Uh, I give most of my attention to the final decades of the 19th century in the United States a period that witnessed the growth of the scientific charity movement, an effort to rationalize and to discipline uh, charitable giving. The period also witnessed the enormous growth of industrial fortunes that produced the first great wave of what we now think of as modern philanthropy and those uh, general-purpose grant-making institutions, the foundations, uh, that uh, pursued the, the welfare of all mankind. It's at this moment uh, that I argue, uh, in the heart of the first Gilded Age, that the split between charity and philanthropy uh, becomes the chasm that we are all familiar with today. So, how did the advocates of this ascendant ethic of philanthropy understand charity? According to its champions, philanthropy was efficient, whereas most charitable giving was wasteful. Philanthropy would turn its attentions to regional national, and even global problems, while charity's scope was parochial. Philanthropy was big and bold, and charity was small and timid. Philanthropy would address root causes, whereas charitable giving was preoccupied with palliatives. Philanthropy would be governed by rational analysis and the sober calculations of the boardroom and the laboratory, whereas charitable giving was prompted by sentimental impulses. Philanthropy would do away with the very need for charity. It was uh, a supersessionist crusade in in many respects, whereas charity was inherently conservative and accepted a base level of neediness and of suffering as God-given, providentially mandated. I think we all probably recognize that critique in, in some form, but we might not be as familiar with the perspective from the other side of the divide. And here, again, is where I think a little history comes in handy. For at precisely the same moment when modern philanthropy was defining its own prerogatives by critiquing charity, defenders of charity were developing a counter critique of their own which distanced itself against philanthropy. At the forefront of these defenders were Catholics who could call on deep reserves of theological justifications for corporeal uh, works of mercy. Charity, in their understanding, was sensitive to the immediate needs of suffering individuals, whereas philanthropy, for all its professed love of mankind, tended to hold man himself uh, in contempt. As one 19th-century Catholic writer quipped, philanthropy's efforts to eliminate poverty often began with the effort to banish actual poor people for one's estate. Charity was warm-hearted, while philanthropy tended to be cold and calculating. Charity did not judge the needy, whereas philanthropy often condescended to them. Charity sought to uh, honor the sacred bond between benefactor and beneficiary, whereas philanthropy ultimately poisoned it. Charity was fundamentally religious. Philanthropy was secular. Charity could function outside the demands of the marketplace, whereas philanthropy was a creature of capitalism. Over the course of my research, I did come to appreciate the utility of this antagonism, uh, the way it helped to clarify the various uh, responsibilities and distinctive imperatives of each charity of charity and philanthropy. But I also became convinced of its limitations, of the way in which an emphasis on the split could blind devotees of one to the legitimate critiques of the other. I became convinced as well, and I think the historical record confirms this for me, that both charity and philanthropy were stronger, uh, were more, re- more secure, more responsible when they were braced and buttressed by the challenge the other offered. And so I didn't just want to utilize history to illuminate the split between charity and philanthropy. I also thought that history could instruct us in how we might bridge that divide. And at the turn of the last century, these bridges were well-traveled. A core of pioneering philanthropists acknowledged the rebuke represented by charity, while some of the age's most devout defenders of charity recognized the value of philanthropy's critique. Each did not deny the tensions between charity and philanthropy, but sought to cultivate them, to turn the two moral, moral imperatives into uh, productive, if wary, partners. I focused first in the monograph on the leaders of the charity organization movement, which had its start in England in the late uh, 1860s and took root in the U.S. uh, by the the end of the following decade. The charity organization movement dedicated itself to eradicating the scourge of indiscriminate giving and supplied many of the theories of giving that informed the early uh, modern philanthropists. Rockefeller was a major funder. Uh, one of the early founders of the Russell Sage Foundation, was also also a leader um, of the movement. Charity organization harbored a pronounced repressive strain, and its early efforts emphasized the weeding out of undeserving applicants for relief and the exposure of charitable frauds. But the suspicion of traditional almsgiving had a more progressive bent and ultimately led to support for for broader societal and environmental reforms that eliminated the need for charity by addressing the root causes of poverty to the work of what became known as scientific philanthropy. At the same time, the leaders of the movement insisted that their true aim was to rehabilitate true charity, to rescue the charitable relationship from the indignities of anonymous urban life. They championed the use of friendly visitors, volunteer men and mostly women, who would call upon the poor in their homes, and besides performing a thorough investigation of what they found there, would also develop a close and personal bond with their charges. These visitors would provide an essential counterweight to the professional and bureaucratic callousness which uh, could afflict the movement. There were strong paradoxes and tensions between these positions, which most of the perceptive leaders uh, of the movement appreciated and I should note most modern historians have lit upon. But these leaders seemed willing to accept the tensions as the price of resisting the popular notion that philanthropy and charity were ultimately antagonistic. Mary Richmond, for instance, a leader of the movement and one of the founders of professional social work, pushed back against those who saw what she called wholesale and retail reform as incompatible ends. She complained about the ardent reformer who insisted that an hour spent writing a letter to a senator lobbying for progressive legislation would do more good than days spent in retail service working for the immediate needs of the poor. After all, she argued, those who had come in close personal contact with the suffering of the poor were 10 times as likely to write that, that kind of letter in the first place. At their best, charity organization proponents recognized the value of seeing both charity's limitations and thus the need for philanthropy, and charity's essential promise. In the words of the movement's first historian, which I chose as the title of the monograph, they understood that the end and aim of all charity is no charity, and in another sense, the end and aim of all charity is more charity. Uh, It's a motto I think all of us would do well to ponder. I think that general idea was embraced as well by a core of early 20th century Catholic charity reformers, men like William Kirby and John Ryan, who I also highlight in the monograph, along with the work of the leading Catholic lay uh, charitable group, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. They insisted that Catholics must not sheathe Catholics' critical power and must continue to call out the dangers of a reliance on secular philanthropy. But they also pushed their co-religionists to expand Catholic charity's individualistic orientation to address broader societal conditions and to endorse reforms such as unemployment insurance, (coughs) minimum wages, and the regulations against child labor. These reformers acknowledged that an embrace of the providential nature of poverty, which allowed for the blessings of charity, could could mask unworthy reactionary tendencies. The leading journal of the the Catholic charity reformers, for instance, banned invocations of the biblical dictum, the poor you will always have with you which frequently accompanied uh, defenses of Catholic uh, charitable giving, arguing that it promoted, quote, bad logic, bad social philosophy, bad exegesis, and bad apologetics. The reason why I thought it was so important to focus on these bridge builders of the past was that the distance today between charity and philanthropy now seems as wide as ever, and in part because in so many intellectual provinces, philanthropy seems to be the only legitimate paradigm with which to engage voluntary given. philanthropy's status and supreme confidence has been bolstered by a faith in market-based approaches to social ills, by the spread of an entrepreneurial ethos that fuels big, ambitious schemes of social uplift, and by the concentration of wealth that has provided men and women with the resources to make good on those ambitions. But those ambitions rarely take in the more modest promptings of charity. As one study from the Indiana University Center on Philanthropy has recently suggested, the wealthier a giver, the less likely he or she is to donate charities directed towards meeting the basic needs of the poor. As I suggested before, I think this gap between charity and philanthropy is a real problem for all of us who care about the sector, since each has so much to learn from the other. But in my monograph, I also suggest some intimations of the resurgence of charity, as an oppositional ethic. And again, the stronger uh, the charity is in this role, the more secure the bridge becomes between charity and philanthropy. Uh, The recent pronouncements of Popes Benedict and Francis, for instance, in which charity stands against the excess of the bureaucratic state or of the deified market. The Great Recession has also sparked another rediscovery of poverty and has led some philanthropists to direct funding to social service organizations and has led many nonprofits to couple social service provision with advocacy work. An ethic of charity has provided an alternative framework for some seeking to check the advance of strategic philanthropy, one that counsels a measure of humility and calls for more openness to the perspectives of grantees and less assuredness of foundation infallibility. Uh, Admittedly, the monograph did not dwell on how this what I call this wary partnership between charity and philanthropy would look like in practice. And I, I'm interested to, to get your thoughts on that today. Uh, but it did end with an individual who is doing, I think is doing her part, to cultivate that partnership. And that is, is Patty Stonecipher. I'll let her speak more about her move from the Gates Foundation to Martha's Table. But one point that I wanted to make now, and I do make in the monograph, is that in the press, this transition was often described as a sort of rebuke or a, a repudiation Uh, but I think if you paid attention to how Patty herself described it, it was not, or at least it was not mainly that. It was more like a mediation. She had taken lessons that she learned at the world's largest foundation and would apply them at a local food pantry and family services organization. In other words, she was demonstrating in her own commitments that it was possible, without too much strain, to seek more charity and the end of charity at the same time. Thank you.
2: So I want to begin also by thanking uh, the Hudson Institute, the Bradley Center, and Bill Chambra for organizing this event and including me. It's very hard to believe that the Bradley Center is ending uh, because it has done such an excellent job of bringing people together from such a wide range of views, a contribution very much in the spirit of both charity and philanthropy. I also want to thank Ben Soskis for proposing today's topic and writing such a learned, thoughtful, and provocative essay about charity and philanthropy. And I hope what he said now will encourage those who haven't yet read it to, uh, to, to look, at, look at it in detail. I'd like to make uh, three, just three suggestions about our topic. These have to do with our reasons for consulting history on such matters, Uh, with different definitions of charity and with what, end, finally, with what charity and or philanthropy might achieve in the U.S. and what we might want them to achieve. If I read Ben's paper correctly, he argues here that the study of history can help us reflect on our own motives and purposes for engaging, uh, for, for, uh, engaging in the giving of time and treasure. Uh, Historical investigation can help us consider what we really want to accomplish through our strategies and plans and to think whether we are paying appropriate attention uh, to the humanity of those we aim, directly and indirectly, uh, to assist. Ben's paper seems to me excellent in arguing for this use of history. I'd suggest that history can also be used to help us think about the larger organization of society as a whole, and about the ways in which society and government shape options and hence can help us think about the possible implications of possible changes in policy and law. Maybe that will bring us back to the uh, Hudson Institute's concern with policy um, uh, and and the ways in which policy and law uh, shape uh, charity in the United States. <coughs> Regarding definitions, I think Ben does a really wonderful job <coughs> of explicating the distinction between charity and philanthropy that was drawn by Andrew Carnegie and elaborated by several others at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. And I applaud his extended discussion of the ways in which Catholics have objected to the critical definition of charity uh, uh, as being an incomplete discussion. I would add that Christians long distinguish between works of corporeal charity or mercy and works of spiritual charity, or mercy. Um, And I want to call attention to that distinction. Corporeal charity meets the need of the body for drink, food, clothing, shelter, and care during incarceration and illness and at death. But in Christian thinking, there is also spiritual charity to instruct the ignorant, uh, counsel the doubtful, admonish sinners, bear (laughs) wrongs patiently, forgive offenses willingly, comfort the afflicted, and pray for the living and the dead. Carry out spiritual works of charity. It's necessary to support, as the uh, Elizabethan Statute of Charitable Uses put it, in Britain's turn to a sort of Protestant uh, uh, version of Christianity. It's necessary to support schools of learning, free schools, scholars and universities, churches, education, and preferment of orphans, maintenance for houses of correction and other objects of that sort. For many people educated within a tradition that places an emphasis on teaching and learning, on careful and disciplined thought, uh, on engaging others, uh, it is and has been charitable to build institutions and to celebrate valued principles. Those who live within such traditions have learned patience not only in bearing wrongs, uh, but in seeking to persuade others and accepting delays. In any case, in practice, the legal definition of charity in the United States has long included gifts to underwrite spiritual acts of charity. These include support for religious houses of worship, for religious schools and seminaries, for students, teachers, and religious officials. A big part of the story of charity, or philanthropy, uh, not only in the 19th century but down to the present, has to do with giving in small amounts and large, for immediate use and also for endowments, for Protestant dominations, for Catholic institutions, for individual congregations and branches of Judaism, and to the many smaller religious communities. The end result intended by such giving might be an increase of individual benevolence and caring. The immediate purposes often have to do with bricks and mortar, with scholarship and retirement funds, with endowments. At the end of the 19th century, some of the biggest individual donors continued to support the religious purposes, the religious institutions and the schools sponsored by religious institutions. Um, But others uh, feared that Protestant denominations had perhaps become both too successful and too quarrelsome, both within themselves uh, and with others. Um, And debates over those questions, it seems to me, lay behind the creation of the charity organization movement and much of the enthusiasm for philanthropy. And as Ben notes, their critics, Protestant as well as Catholic, uh, relied on definitions of charity that included acts for the spirit uh, as well as for the body. I want to end by noting uh, yet another use of history uh, to advocate for norms, for ideas as to what everyone should do through persuasion, through public opinion, or perhaps by encouraging a change in the laws regulating and shaping charity. It seems to me, and that's been a lively topic in, in recent years, it seems to me that in the U.S., the First Amendment has been the cornerstone for charity and philanthropy, and that by emphasizing the ideals of separating church and state, allowing freedom to believe or not to believe, to speak, to publish, to advocate, U.S. law has militated against establishing any single orthodoxy. The result has been what can be seen as a glorious confusion or a cacophony of voices. Among the positives, we might perhaps count America's ability not only to develop uh, multiple religious movements but also to contain and limit religious conflict despite the variety and often strong disagreements among those committed to different faiths and philosophies. Perhaps we might also uh, attribute uh, to, to that sort of freedom uh, the vitality and success of many of the conjuries of uh, institutions uh, in the United States, including uh, our contending and far from satisfactory colleges and universities. If that sort of reading of history is valid, then we, might, then we might ask whether efforts to establish any single standard for charity or philanthropy or for the laws that regulate and govern those practices would be a good thing.
3: Well, I'm going to follow my colleagues here, and before I jump into this discussion, it would be a failure of charity and of justice if I didn't say a word about Bill Shambra and his work here at the Bradley Center. Uh, Bill has given generously uh, to all of us and the entire nonprofit sector uh, from his own intellect, uh, but he's also given us something painfully rare in this sector, and that is thoughtful criticism and serious debate. Uh, To the shame of our sector, there is hardly anything that matches the 148 panels that Bill has provided from this agora. Uh. (laughs) Uh, But beyond that, uh, Bill has not only provided an invaluable forum for philanthropic critique, he's also practiced it personally, uh, going, like Daniel, into such dens of lions as the Chronicle of Philanthropy and even the boardrooms of billion-dollar foundations. Uh, His personal scholarship has given us all much to ponder, and I know that I, who first met Bill in the summer of 1983 at AEI, can say that the relationship between my musings on all things charitable and communal on the one hand and Bill's wisdom on the other, uh, resembles what Emerson said of philosophy after Plato. Just footnotes to the master. Now, turning to Benjamin Soska's uh, monograph, uh, it's only just to say that it is an excellent piece of work from which I learned a great deal. Uh, I know Bill especially wanted me to comment on the Catholic portions, uh, since my own study of Catholic social teaching began that same summer of 1983 at AEI. Uh, And here, too, uh, I have only praise uh, for uh, Ben's work, uh, although I will add just a little bit of extra material. Uh, later on. Uh, My highest praise of Soskin's work would be that it exemplifies the Catholic inclination to prefer both and to either or. Uh, Soskin invokes both and in his very title and throughout his essay he shows that it's better to have both charity and philanthropy rather than to set them at odds with one another. Uh, In addition to praising his work, I want to ask Soskin a few questions that his good work raised in my mind uh, these may aid in our discussion, uh, and then I'll add a few thoughts on further readings and on other Catholic uh, material. My first question would be to ask for a bit more specifics on just how charity can help correct philanthropy. Uh, as Soskin writes, quote, Philanthropy is more secure when supported by charity's correctives, and charity is stronger when braced by philanthropy's critiques. Uh, I agree, but many devils are in the detail. Uh, my second question follows from this. How specifically can philanthropy correct charity? Reading between the lines of Saskus, uh I think I see three possibilities hinted at, and I'd enjoy hearing his thoughts on them. Uh, a, it's a question of scale. Philanthropy urges charity to think big. Uh, B, it's a question of where you aim your help, at the causes of suffering or the symptoms. And C, it's a question of where the sources of suffering and disorder lie, in the human heart or in social arrangements. Sometimes I have the sense in Saskis that for him, that last option, C, uh, is a major concern. He seems to say, you aren't entirely serious about or comprehending of suffering uh, if you aren't putting a significant part of your effort into changes in social arrangements. I don't say that's entirely wrong-headed, but I would argue that it brings into view a dangerous road uh, and that if we follow too far, we'll lead to the worst excesses of philanthropy, uh, what Edmund Burke called the homicidal philanthropy of France. Uh, My last question for Saskas would be, uh, may we have some more specifics on the role that social science should play in balancing charity and philanthropy? Uh, he mentions social science, I believe, only once in his main text uh, in the context of Mary Richmond seeking a middle ground between charity and philanthropy. Uh, so those are my questions. Let me turn to a few exhortations for further reading. Uh, first, I want to thank Saskis for some actual, excellent sources. Uh, his paper led me and I, perhaps the rest of us to consider. Uh, first, the Mary Richmond materials he cites uh, paint a richer and more interesting picture than we usually receive of this large and pivotal figure. Uh, she is not simply the pioneer of the professional charity worker guided solely by social science, uh, which is the popular legend about her. Uh, second, I'd urge wider reading of the 19th century materials Saska cites uh, from Orestes Brownson. Uh, even an overzealous Catholic like myself, uh, who for some years received his salary from a non named after Brownson, uh, hasn't read widely enough in this important Catholic convert and pioneer. Uh, Brownson has a taste for the polemical, but he is a deep thinker uh, and a provocative observer of America. Let me recommend a few other readings which Saskis lacked the space to explore uh, or that go a bit afield from his focused topic. Uh, First, Tocqueville, and not just his famous Democracy in America, which outlines how a modern liberal republic can flourish and overcome a selfish individualism, but also his other masterpiece, the Ancien Régime and the Revolution, which explains how France was the failed mirror opposite of America, uh, which, thanks to the contempt for one's countrymen bred by an over-centralized government, exterminated the habits and even the capacity of citizens to come to each other's aid. Another important Tocqueville reading uh, is his brief memoir on pauperism uh, which was reprinted some years back with an invaluable introduction by Gertrude Himmelfarb. In that work Tocqueville contrasts private and public charity uh, with a preference for private. Uh, And speaking of Himmelfarb, no one interested in our topic should fail to read her two great histories uh, on that topic as it played out in Britain Uh, both before and during the period uh, that Saskis covers in America. Uh, First, there's her idea of poverty, England in the early industrial age, and second, poverty and compassion, the moral imagination of the late Victorians. Uh, I'd note in passing that Himmelfarb shows the harm done by Thomas Malthus, who propagated bad social science uh, in both the moral and statistical senses, Uh, and went on to influence the gruesome eugenical philanthropists of the 20th century. Uh, Another author to read, Marvin Alasky, mentioned in passing by Soskis in his uh, monograph, uh, shouldn't be missed, especially his archival history uh, of the early centuries of America, the tragedy of American compassion, Uh, written, I believe, thanks to a year's fellowship uh, from the Bradley Foundation. Uh, it goes without saying that Bill Shambra's writings on philanthropy uh, and social science and the search for the root causes of poverty shouldn't be missed, uh, but in addition to these more negative critiques, let me urge everyone to read Bill 's uh, 2009 Bradley lecture at AEI uh, because it gives Bill's history of the positive alternative that he favors, uh, namely strong, self-healing local communities and nonprofits. Uh, Another great source of wisdom on the decline and future promise of what we in America call the independent sector is the work of the man who coined that term, uh, the late Richard Cornell. Uh, Since he's so little known, let me give you a little taste of his thought from an essay published in the spring 1996 issue of Philanthropy Magazine, published by uh, the Philanthropy Roundtable. Quote, philanthropy was from the beginning enthusiastically involved in the project to nationalize community. It financed the studies that documented the presumed inadequacies of primary and voluntary institutions. It trained the specialized professionals who now comprise what critics call the new class. It financed the new institutions that devised the step-by-step centralization of responsibility. Early on Philanthropy moved from providing direct services to advocacy, dutifully and consistently advocating transfers of responsibility to more monopolistic, centralized, professionalized, and authoritarian institutions. In the 1950s and 60s, I was a philanthropoid. Then it was simply understood that philanthropy's task was to lubricate transfers of responsibilities to ever more remote and authoritarian institutions. Uh, for those who want an accessible, yet knowledgeable introduction to the understanding of charity in the Jewish Jewish and Christian scriptures, uh, I recommend Gary Anderson's recent book, Charity, which concentrates on the term in the Old and New Testaments, but also follows it into the Middle Ages and the Reformation where changing views presaged some of today's secular ideas of philanthropy. And now, uh, before I turn to my final remarks on Catholic sources, I want to stress the value of a landmark essay that uh, Saska cites, Brian Anderson's criticism of the American nonprofit known as Catholic Charities uh, in City Journal. Uh, It has the revealing title, How Catholic Charities Lost Its Soul. Uh, And in this vein, I can't help adding uh, that you shouldn't miss Daniel Patrick Moynihan's speech at the inaugural meeting of the group independent sector uh, in early 1980, uh, also available on the Philanthropy Roundtables website. Uh, the very Irish Moynihan was disturbed that in that very year, quote, for the first time, more than fifty percent of Catholic charities' budget came from government. More than half. In time, there cannot be any outcome to that encroachment. Save government control." Okay, Uh, now just a few quick Catholic quotations uh, to add to uh, Ben's good work. Um, He mentions Pope Francis uh, briefly. And I just wanted to add uh, three brief quotes that show uh, what I think is actually a theme of his papacy uh, and reveal that he is not a conventional liberal, however much The New York Times uh, editorial page may like to think. Uh, So listen to this. This is his very first homily as Pope. Uh, He cites the three scripture readings and says that their themes are walking, building, and professing. And then he says, Professing. We can walk as much as we want. We can build many things. But if we do not confess Jesus Christ, nothing will avail. We will become a pitiful NGO but not the Church, the Bride of Christ. When one does not profess Jesus Christ, one professes the worldliness of the devil." Uh, A little later, at a general audience, uh, Pope Francis explains, today I begin a new series of catecheses on the Church. To speak of the Church is to speak of our mother, of our family. The Church, in fact, is not an institution focused in on itself, or a private in- association, an NGO. And then lastly, this is just an impromptu talk that he gave again the first year of his pontificate, uh, this time at Rio de Janeiro at World Youth Day. This is, uh, part of this is often quoted. I want the church to go out into the streets. I want us to resist everything worldly, everything static, everything comfortable everything to do with clericalism, everything that might make us closed in on ourselves. The parishes, the schools, the institutions are made for going out. If they don't, they become an NGO, and the church cannot be an NGO. Okay, uh, one more source, this doesn't make any appearance in, in Ben's monograph, but I think it's, it fits perfectly and should be added, and that's Mother Teresa. Uh, not an American, but somebody uh, widely respected and read in America and in our own town. There's an AIDS hospice not far from here uh, that her missionaries of charities run. Uh, they're now active, of course, in about 140 countries around the world. Uh, at her famous talk at the uh, National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, where you can see Bill and Hillary Clinton squirm as Mother talks, Uh, She said, sounding like Pope Francis, we are not social workers. We may be doing social work in the eyes of some people, but we must be contemplatives in the heart of the world, for we are touching the body of Christ, and we are always in his presence. You too must bring the presence of God into your family. Love begins at home, and it is not how much we do, but how much love we put into what we do. I want you to find the poor here, right in your own home first, and begin love there. Be that good news to your own people first, and find out about your next-door neighbors. Do you know who they are?" Uh, Similarly, she said in uh, No Greater Love, If someone feels that God wants from him a transformation of social structures, that's an issue between him and his God. We all have the duty to serve God where we feel called. I feel called to help individuals, to love each human being. I never think in terms of crowds in general, but in terms of persons. Were I to think about crowds, I would never begin anything. It is the person that matters. Never worry about numbers. Help one person at a time. And always start with the person nearest you. That's a daunting challenge to each one of us, each and every day. Uh, And it is not a final solution to the problem of suffering. But history has given us reason to be fearful Of final solutions. Thank
4: you. Good afternoon. I asked to go last because I am the one that doesn't have the academic underpinnings to this work, uh, but I've been well informed and well supported by those who do. So I'll just add my thanks very briefly to Bill and Kristen and those who uh, supported you in this important effort to increase the dialogue around the important issues of philanthropy um, during a period of, of historic growth in the sector where we all have much to learn. Uh, I was a, a bit puzzled when first contacted about this paper because I think in some ways my own journey <laughs> Uh, describes uh, the fact that there isn't, that's, this isn't an either-or. Um, uh, Benjamin did a great job of explaining why in history it was often set up as an either charity or philanthropy. But I think in practice, we've seen a lot of people that have made the journey from one to the other or who have used their abilities up close with what you might call charity to inform those back further in the system with what you might call philanthropy. And my own uh, path uh, to, to this day as today is one that started with 20 years in the business sector. You know, in my family, which was Catholic activist in the Midwest, I was the sixth of nine children. I was deemed, when I went to work in the technology sector, the family capitalist. And I teasingly referred to myself often as the family savings and loan. Uh, because every family of, of hardcore Catholic activists actually needs a family savings and loan. Um, but uh, I came from a, a family that, that believed uh, that their responsibility was in the way that they moved through this world, and they acted every day uh, uh, in that fashion, whether that was in creating soup kitchens or grocery pantries or in serving the, the church in other fashions. I went on to distanced myself at some level from the theology but continued with the social beliefs of my of my parents and um, but I enjoyed the tech sector I always believed in two strong values one was social justice and the other one was increasing knowledge and I believe that the opportunity for the tech sector in the 70s and 80s and 90s to increase knowledge was far greater than any of us have in the philanthropic sector absent perhaps higher education in the in the social sector, and I was proud to be part of building that engine, and equally uh, saw my responsibility still to be up close with the needs in my community in Seattle, as well as back to the system level with building software that would reach around the world and change lives in ways that none of us even dreamed at the time, but it was in the fact that my children and I were still involved in the daily activities of ensuring that uh, that groceries reach those in need and others, that drew Bill and Melinda who, Gates, who had become great friends, to ask me to join their father in creating what became the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, because they knew that I, with the work that I'd done with them, could do the system. I understood systems and how systems affect everything from the way we create and sell software to way that we clothe and feed and support and stand with the poor. And that ability to both understand systems, something that Bill Gates understands probably better than almost anybody besides his down-the-street neighbor Jeff Bezos or others of that nature, um, but also with a strong inclination to also go in close. And that is what we hoped to create at the Gates Foundation, but with size and complexity comes a tendency to stay back at that system level. And I... Found the ability to touch so many systems with the resources and the and the strategies and the partnerships and the institutions that Gates was able to partner with to affect the systems of of vaccination to affect the systems of micronutrient supplies to affect the systems of housing and uh, transitional housing in Seattle, um, but I missed that opportunity to combine going in close with pulling back far. And in moving back to my roots at Martha's table, I've been able to combine the best, I think, in some ways of both worlds, in that I have that chance to stand with, as Pope Francis says in one of the uh, quotes that Benjamin, uh, that Benjamin references, he, he declares that life is means working to eliminate the structural causes of poverty, uh, promote the integral development of the poor, as well as small daily acts of solidarity in meeting real needs which we encounter. And I have that privilege today. I can be here with you thinking and informing and discussing the big systems of philanthropy and charity, and tonight I'll be on the corner of 2nd and K uh, administering to the needs of the poor that are those with mental health or other problems that keep them from uh, adequately addressing their own needs today for an evening meal. Alongside of me tonight will be a very senior USDA official who is the person that is shaping the future of food stamps, and that's the special gift that I have been given by being able to go down close and being able to pull back is offset some of the weaknesses of those of us who are in close every day. We are so good at the solidarity, at standing with the needs, but we sometimes (coughs) don't have the luxury of stepping back to understand and reflect the way we're doing today. I, I call my Sundays now strategy Sundays because there is no strategy when you're worried about whether the bus lights, the brakes on the bus matters and whether the, uh, whether the, the food from Chipotle has pork in it and a lot of the people won't eat the pork. The, the needs of these frontline organizations can be overwhelming, and we need to encourage those who are up close to be able to spend the time and invest the time and give them the resources to reflect, to bring others close to the issues, and to build up the voices of those who have the issues. And that is one thing where when you ask the critical question, which is how can philanthropy uh, offset charity and how can charity help um, correct philanthropy, one of the things we really do need is instead of talking to philanthropists and charitable givers is to actually hear directly from those who we are talking about here. Um, And for instance, at Martha's Table, we recently received a very small gift from a local philanthropist, not very small, a small gift from a local philanthropist to build up an effort called Witness to Hunger so that a dozen family leaders that we come into contact with regularly who experience monthly hunger, who are working, by the way, they are the working poor, can come with me and be with me and stand with me in the circumstances that we have to share with you why is it. What is the right philanthropic government business solution? And we we as the frontline organizations can do that for philanthropy and, by the way, for government and for business, is raise those voices, not just ours as the Mother Teresa's or the Patty Stone Cipher's or the whatever, but raise the voices of those who are struggling to change their own system. And then for those back to the system, uh, I appreciated that Ben understood that when I said I'd had enough white papers and PowerPoint presentations to last a lifetime, the fault of those who work primarily in philanthropy is this issue of bureaucracy and standing back often keeps you away from understanding what are the rocks in the pockets of those you serve and I use a very good example which is in in looking at changing agricultural productivity one of the one brilliant philanthropist gave money to develop a new form of bean that would be much more robust produce much bigger crops and rolled it out and three years later didn't understand why no one was using it and the answer is it takes four times as long to cook it right but by not standing with And and the time for cooking was more important than the time for planting uh, because the women were doing the planting. So the likelihood of being able to invest that in the cooking was an improper trade-off. And that's why we need to invest in those that are the front line, that are truth-tellers, that are clear, that will measure, that will tell, and that will speak truth to not just power but to all those who have an investment. At the same time, make sure that those who have the wealth to affect the system, are learning directly from those in need and the organizations that serve them. So I think that is my role today: is to be that person who's down close, and I have the privilege of also seeing the system. So I thank you and everybody on the panel.
0: Well, thank you all. Let me let me. Um, as is my custom, I uh, grab the privilege of of putting the first question, and I try to stir things up a little bit. So I'm going to be possibly um, uh, a little more. This is going to be a little more sharply put than it than it might uh, justify. But uh, you know, Ms. Stone Stonecipher, listening to your background, um, you, you know, a, a lot of young people uh, uh, who, who are now not so young in the sector have background, including me, have background similar to yours. Um, one of the, the imbalances, though, I think, in, in this question and in, in philanthropy today is, you know, young people are now uh, going to institutions of higher education, coming out of service programs in which they get a particular kind of understanding of what service is about, uh, they go to institutions of higher education where they're encouraged to um, enter into, let's say, uh, s- studies that that are more concerned with the systems. Right. I mean, this is if you are if you're an aspiring and ambitious young person, uh, you don't you don't you're not absorbing Catholic social thought at the feet of your parents and and in the large family. Uh, you are in fact learning about systems and learning how to manipulate uh, the systems and learning how to you know breed a bean that will be uh, so much more effective than all the beans out there in the world and they never encounter anyone along the way who will say to them right uh, the women you know who are going to be cooking this bean you know don't want it you know and this, this—I mean—this has struck me in the course of the last ten years as being a problem that's getting worse. I mean, I, you know, we can talk about the balance between philanthropy and charity, and I know Ben, you talk about some some hopeful signs, including uh, Stone Stonecipher's career, and I think that's absolutely correct. But for young people today, coming up, isn't isn't the aspiration to go into you know to go from Harvard? to the staff of the Gates Foundation, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, whatever, and be the person who manipulates the systems, right? Because that's where, I mean, you can justify it to yourself by saying, well, this is obviously where I can do the most good. But in fact, of course, there's something of a power trip about that, right? And I, and I just wonder, is can we really be hopeful about this? Is there really a... Is there really a kind of a return to uh, the charitable critique, which was strong earlier because of the historical uh, institutions that resisted it, that resisted philanthropy? But I don't know that it's there anymore. Anyway, so I'm just, you know, for for everyone, you know, what do you think about that? Is isn't there in fact a, a radical imbalance on behalf of the philanthropic as opposed to the charitable?
4: Well, uh, I, I do think, you know, the, the tension given in the last 10 years to um, big new philanthropy is appealing, and there's a, certainly a, a large group of people that want to be part of that. It's nice to give away money, right? But the much bigger group that I see, and you all would know statistically, is young people as makers, young people as trying things, whether they're creating a baby food company, but part of their idea is that part of that baby food goes X, or they're doing programming all day, but doing social code work for organizations like Martha's Table at night. We have 10,000 instances of service. If we could absorb all the creative ways that young people want to serve by fixing the roots of our, our vans or by changing the uh, ways that we, um, you know, what is uh, what is the Uber of food matching between surplus <laughs> and uh, um, a need, the, there is... They don't draw the bright lines that we've drawn here between charity and philanthropy. They are socially engaged and see social engagement, whether they're a bond trader or, uh, um, or going to work for the Gates Foundation or working at the Hudson Institute. The entwined nature of social change and daily activity just, for me, I don't, I don't see these young people making the bright lines.
1: I would say – so I, mean, I do think there is an imbalance. I mean I think it is possible that um, the kind of social enterprise discourse sometimes incorporates elements of direct personal contact with the poor. But I, I agree with Bill that the balance is probably shifted, at least in, in, the, in the ways people think about the sector and in the ways that the leaders of the sector talk about it, or the ones who at least who get the most uh, ink. Um, it's Philanthropy is the dominant paradigm now. Um, my answer to that, I think, betrays my own academic background, which is one, one way to address that is to have a little more historical imagination. Um, it, new philanthropy is, is, uh, is one of the oldest <laughs> things there is. Philanthropy is always saying it's new. Uh, but I think this, this obsession with newness um, is linked to some of the uh, lack of engagement with other ways and other means, other modes of, of thinking about um, the responsibility to do good. And so um, maybe because it's what I, I've been trained in, I, I do think that um, encouraging people in the field to think a little bit about uh, what has come before or what's worked and what hasn't worked um, will, gives a sense of um, humility or, or uh, some uh, a, a certain degree of modesty that uh, balances some of the excesses of, of the philanthropic mindset. I should say, though, that I, I, I'm not a... I uh, you know, i think that those ambitions and that... Um, that hubris does have its place as well. So uh, you don't want to completely eliminate it. I, I think the, the, main, uh, the main goal is to find a balance, uh, a way of kind of communicating between these two modes of, of thought. Um, and I, I think that history is at least one way of doing so.
0: Yeah. David, you go. Uh,
2: I'm, I'm not sure how to, how, to, how to respond to such a large question mm-hmm. as uh, what, you know, wh- what are young people What's wrong with young people today? <laughs> kids these days. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, in a, 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 I don't
1: mean to. Uh, Rock and roll music and all that. Right. That's yeah.
2: <laughs> a lo- it's a longstanding uh, concern. A, a couple of I can mention a couple of concrete examples. Um, one of my Ph.D. students had a daughter who was really bright and capable and went to Yale, and then she. But they were born in. She was born in China and uh, she used to go back to Beijing and teach her grandparents, colleagues, children English in the summer and then come back. So she was sort of extraordinary background. So after her first uh, first year at Yale she went to China for a summer and she went to a place in the west of China and was associated with a university where they were trying to introduce new crops. And she immediately saw that the guys at the university were guys and they wanted to talk to men but it was the women who actually planted things. <laughs> uh, and so she immediately confronts, she had no hesitation in confronting the guys uh, at the university who outranked her by gender and by age and by position and sa- explained to them they were missing the boat. Uh, she was perfectly confident in representing that, that view in exactly the way uh, that you have described Um, And I hear the same kinds of things from graduate students in in my classes in uh, Case Western Reserve who are teaching in Cleveland or or, or suburban schools, uh, but who want to go on and get get a doctorate. And they're working with real people in front of them in their classes. If they don't respond to those real people, they cannot succeed. They can't even stay in the classroom. So um, I think one of the questions that your question raises is whether – as a society, we're paying enough attention uh, to those kind to people in those kinds of situations, and talking about the satisfactions that they can get, as um, and and also as as uh, Patty Stonecipher is saying, giving them the opportunity on the weekends to reflect on on what they're doing. And I don't, I don't, maybe that's something that could call for more attention. But what do you do? How do you display Distribute resources. I mean, that's the big system question. There's never enough resources to do everything. So.
4: Whenever yeah. a young person asks me about getting a job in philanthropy, I tell them to follow where the money goes, not where the money's given mm-hmm. away. We we stopped at one point with this issue of everybody that ever worked in health applying to the Gates Foundation as the <laughs> ultimate way to play out their vision of a healthier world, and figured out that we're like there were a hundred times more jobs we created. It was probably a thousand times more jobs we created in the field, and the number of people in academia, the number of young people in academia. The math is, is, is totally outside of the philanthropy as these large organizations begin to distribute. So the best way to get a good job in the philanthropic world in most of these organizations is go do a fabulous job someplace where you actually really do learn something. So <laughs> I, I just, I don't actually think what, I, mean, I hope you guys are wrong. I don't think the <laughs> um, elitism, I think most philanthropies are, are taking seriously about the need to keep having fresh water, uh, new people coming in that bring different perspectives. It seems to me a critical answer and part of the reason that I left when I did.
1: Yeah. So, wh- How would you explain the small amount that philanthropy spends on direct social service to the poor?
4: I think people are afraid. I think that it, it's not, it's, and it, by the way, it's not a small amount of dollars. It's a small amount compared to the bricks and mortar institutions where no one ever is embarrassed by that new computer science building or the wing of the X, right? You're just not embarrassed by that. But there is some concern that the dollars given to Martha's Table for feeding the poor tonight are going to be gone tomorrow. And then what is there then? Am I making the right decision? Is it the right choice? Um, and I, I think that's a legitimate question for people to ask, which is, is this the right place in the system for me and my dollars and my energy to intervene? Um, that that said, I do think we could tilt that. There's only so many opera halls we need. We've determined that, right, with the recession, that some of them weren't needed that were built. Um, and I think we could, we, we do need to make sure that the social service area is a good and Party place, and one of the things that's happened over the last decade that philanthropy caused to happen at the front line was going from measuring what I call seats and sandwiches, which is what we measured at Martha's Table, to measuring reduction in food insecurity or in what happened with literacy attainment as opposed to attendance, Um, that those things really matter, and that increases, I hope, philanthropists' willingness to put real bucks behind it if they can see that the system... Actually, changes with the investment.
0: Scott, do you want to get it before we go to the audience? Do you want to? I would,
3: <clears throat> well, I, I don't have much to add, mm. to, add to that. Mm-hmm. I would just add to. Uh, I'm counting
0: so on that. you saying, yes, there is an imbalance, <laughs> and, and uh, philanthropy <laughs> is uh, is a tyrannical enterprise. Uh, well, that, that's easy. Echoing yes. Orestes <laughs> Brownson. That's okay, easy. There, that's there,
3: good there, there certainly is an imbalance, uh, and it's going to be much worse without you uh, banning <laughs> that podium. However, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, the, um, I would add uh, Ben talked about the, uh, historical imagination being valuable and I, qu- I thoroughly yeah. agree and I, I would just uh, put in a plug as well of course for the religious imagination um, purely on the empirical level that is to say uh, yeah. you don't have to believe the, any of the revelations um, but re- it is simply true that religion provides uh, great profundity in both theory and practice There is the profound practice of the missionaries of charity at the AIDS hospice a few blocks from here. Uh, That's profound where practice is concerned. And there's also profundity at the level of theory. If you read Mother Teresa's thinking about what she does and why she does it, or if you read Orestes Brownson, or Pope Francis, or Pope Benedict, um, just as an empirical matter, um, there is much for a young person uh, to both think about and to imitate in daily life uh, in, in both cases.
0: Gotcha, thank you, okay. We have eight minutes left in the lifetime of uh, the Bradley Center uh, oh panel series. So, right. so we need some questions, um, and- uh, the end times. <laughs> yeah, right, except for the end time, end time questions. Yes, please, this gentleman right here. Yeah, oh yes, you have to have the mic. You have to please state your name and affiliation and talk directly into okay. the
2: mic. Okay, uh, Kieran Reval with American Philanthropic LLC. Uh, if you're talking about the end times, I guess I'll pose a particularly, maybe too particular, but particularly Catholic question to Scott first, and then maybe whoever wants to weigh in. Do you see a shift in um, Catholic social teaching, um, particularly, I'm thinking, with the Second Vatican Council and in Gaudium et Spes, where there's talk of, they're moving from the particular, they're moving to a, a wider scope where there's talk of global governance and, and these sorts of things? Um, Do you see any sort of shift there in the council and and any effect that has on the Catholic theory of of charity and philanthropy uh, from that point?
3: There certainly is some shifting, and uh, Ben in his monograph doesn't uh, spend a lot of time with the Vatican II documents, but he does talk about uh, Paul VI, who was the second of the two popes during Vatican II, uh, and his encyclical, Populorum Progressio, a few years after uh, Vatican II which is, in a sense, the, uh, the, the most extreme on the system side of things. Uh, but I think with, with John Paul II and with Benedict, uh, and even arguably with Francis, you see uh, much greater stress on the personal charitable uh, without denying the, the importance of the, the larger picture. Um, partly, I think, because, Bill, they realize this the same way you do, that in our modern discourse, there is an enormous discussion. Uh, enormous emphasis on uh, the big picture uh, and a neglect of the person-to-person, at least in what we say, maybe not in what we do.
0: Okay, more questions. Yeah, Bob, did you?
5: Yes, Bob Woodson, Center for Neighborhood Enterprise. Mm -hmm. I was intrigued with your example of the philanthropist investing a lot of money in growing beans Um, I believe that that's a pervasive attitude towards the poor, from both philanthropists right and left of center, that they parachute into low-income communities, remedies designed by them and others at the universities, with the expectation that the poor participate. And when they fail, there's never an examination of the intervention. The assumption is that it was a poor investment. Uh, I was wondering if... um, if how pervasive you think that problem is, and what is being done or discussed about really listening to the people suffering the problem for the remedies as opposed to being imposed from well-intentioned but ill-informed interventions. We say that you can waste millions if it's well-managed by well-credentialed people.
4: Uh, I I think you answered your own question. It is a problem, but it's also a problem that a lot of people are working to solve. I mean, I I learned from um, great folks about when we did work with sex workers in India, and obviously you could lay out the best plan in the world, but the best people that would understand how to affect sex workers and AIDS were the sex workers, and they did teach us a tremendous amount about where to put our resources and how to, spread the word. And it was successful, I believe, because of that. And I do see that happening a lot of places. Never enough. um, And then in other places, it's just endless, endless discussions at the community level without real solutions orientation. So we have to not just say, we've got to listen to everybody, but we need to listen to everybody with the uh, ability to create a shared solution that we then go implement, because you can talk forever. But I... I do think philanthropists are asking these questions and doing pilots, not all of them, but sometimes doing pilots before uh, rollouts for the very reason that you're talking about. We need more understanding of what really is the positive and negative of any given intervention before we then try to scale it at, at a very large level.
1: Yeah. So uh, I think the history here is, is interesting. If you look back at the uh, late 19th century and early 20th century, um, the, there was a, a general fear that the charitable relationship itself would uh, uh, be demeaning to um, to the poor. Uh, this came from both the right and the left. And the um, uh, the solution to this was to uh, transactionalize, to make the charitable exchange into a market exchange by various means. Um, and I think that, to some extent, has Defined a lot of the ways that uh, philanthropists and charity uh, organizations have thought about um, uh, about their endeavors. That um, th- there was a fear that uh, that uh, givers would, um, you know, ha- had too much power, and, and w- there was something uh, problematic about that sort of top-down uh, uh, dynamic. Um, but I think in the course of that uh, that transformation, uh, the sort of integrity of the of the charitable relationship was compromised a bit. And so um, one thing that, that an ethic of charity could do to um, philanthropy is to sort of reengage that question of how do you you know it's not just it's not easy to, 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 to listen to people but uh, it takes it takes more than just the kind of um, you know market testing it, it's a it's a, a, a real project that has to be, to be uh, believed in and I, I, I do think that charity the, an ethic of charity the the way the language it uses the um, the you know, associations it has, um, can help all of us to, to really uh, believe that.
0: One thing uh, that history might contribute, this has been a, a pet peeve of mine, uh, and w- which I, of course, uh, drag out at every opportunity, but the, uh, you know, simply the history of philanthropic uh, efforts to help the poor in any given situation. I mean, we've, we have histories of the war on poverty and so forth, uh, with, uh, with some account of what the Ford Foundation did, but uh, you know what we need, I think, in this area are, are city-level histories of of all of the enterprises that have been launched with such great high hopes. You know, to, they're going to transform the way we do, you know, work with low-income people in Milwaukee, Chicago, Cincinnati, wherever, uh, and they they you know the the. Press releases document their the entry under the scene. They quietly don't do anything and kind of disappear, uh, and there's no sense of history about it, right? I mean, the next person comes on the scene and looks around and and assumes that this has never been tried because, of course, there isn't any historical account that says, yeah, well, other than those seven other times, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's a great new idea. But uh, you, you know this. This is one of the reasons why I'm particularly pleased that we sort of uh, that history is the discipline in this last panel. That
1: Do you know, they, any funders, <laughs> and that's always
0: that's always the question. You know, nobody wants to fund that history. You know, it's it's amazing. Uh, those or all, all of those histories. We have time for one more quick question. And yes, young lady, back. back I'm sorry. The, the,
6: Erica Walter, I, I wanted to pick up on your point you made just now, Mr. Chamber, about the seven previous times that that uh, a foundation would have invested in a system and failed um, and to intersect it with um, Patty's point about the r- learning directly from the truth tellers uh, from those in need. W- what happens when um, we don't pay attention to the truth tellers and we continue as philanthropists to fund a bankrupt system, um, say, like the public schools, where people like uh, Taylor Swift, who just announced that all the profits from her latest single are going to go directly into the New York City public school system, or, you know, which whatever public school system, you like the Walton Foundation, etc. I mean, we, we keep that, that issue in particular. We don't seem to learn the lesson. We keep funding it, and we're not listening to those in need who are the children, who are telling us in various ways the system is failing us. But what, what, what are we, you know, as philanthropists, we continue to, to, to fund it. So i just like your comments on that.
0: Quick, quick
4: responses.
3: Well, the, the, the history of the Annenberg Challenge, has, which is the most famous um, funding disaster of this, uh, particular sort, namely of, of public education. That has been chronicled somewhat by the Fordham uh, Institute uh, in several of the cities where it was tried. Um, very, very little came of the billion dollars uh, that was sunk.
4: Well, and uh, uh, and honestly, that um, was using Taylor Swift as an example. <laughs> um, unfortunately, a lot of those big, sp- we, we, the media likes to cover what is new, especially if it's associated with a a bright light's name, it would be great if five years from now you tried to measure whether, first of all, did that money go and did it have impact and that somehow that knowledge would be seen. I do think it's one of the beauties of current technology is that that information will be accessible. I can guarantee you someone's going to ask and follow that question and that hopefully future philanthropists, future Taylor Swifts will wonder whether or not that mattered. Now, the first thing they may wonder is, how many Google hits did I get on that announcement today, right? <laughs> and then, but, but let's presume good intention and say that she really also wants it to affect children's lives, and that should be knowable with the level of transparency and interactivity that we have. I'm optimistic that more of our lessons, as long as we have opportunity to reflect on them, more of our lessons will be knowable in the future, more of our histories. There isn't much that Gates is doing that someone isn't obsessively tracking (laughs) right now, right? Well, that's a good thing when that much money is in one place. It's a very good thing. And, uh, you know, they don't think it's a good thing from day to day, and I'm sure I didn't when I was the one in (laughs) charge from day to day. But over the long arc of history, that's going to be a very good thing.
0: Yeah. John, yeah, I, I wanted to just John John gets the last question since uh, he represents Hudson, which has put up with the Bradley Center for so many years.
7: Well, I actually wanted to take that in a different direction. I wanted to take this opportunity on behalf of Hudson, my colleagues here at the institute, to to thank uh, Bill and his partnership with Bradley and his colleagues. He's brought some of you in this room who've been willing to kind of think about uh, uh, what's going on in philanthropy and what we can do, what we can't do, to take some of the issues that are underneath the uh, activity of caring for our fellow human beings and to make us think uh, more seriously about them and relentlessly make us think more seriously about them. Uh, uh, I've never actually talked to a donor who said, I was offended by something that Bill did, and uh, uh, I don't (laughs) like Hudson as a result. Uh, They may be offended by it, but I think his intelligence – the kind of people in this room that he's brought to the uh, fore and and uh, create the questions that everybody knows is serious if they're thoughtful. Uh, I want to thank him. And I've also, I, this panel has made me think about the the, the the contrast that he's insisted on bringing correctly to this. And I, uh, far be it from me for me to take a different track from Taylor Swift, but I, I can't <laughs> help but in this season think of It's a Wonderful Life, where the measures are not the measures that you think of in kind of uh, quantitative philanthropy. The measures may be the changes in people's lives that are the most profound but are not measured and aren't even seen. So uh, Bill's made us not forget that, and I believe that is a great service that uh, it is sad on this day to think will not be as frequent, although I still have hopes of enticing him back for uh, occasional uh, out-of-retirement tours on the topics <laughs> that will still be <laughs> enduring. But thank you, Bill, for what you've done for all no. of us.
0: Thank you so much, and, and thank you all for coming. You've been over the years a great audience. The what is it called in Seattle? The twelfth man, the twelfth person, whatever. Uh, couldn't have done it without girl you. from
1: Seattle. I yeah, know. that's right. <laughs> Turn to the guy. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay. Thanks very much.